my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Sugru. He is a national speaker, author, U.S. Air Force veteran, retired police sergeant, and mental health advocate. Michael began his law enforcement career in the United States Air Force as a security forces officer in 1998. As a security forces officer, Michael specialized in law enforcement, global force protection, anti-terrorism, nuclear security, foreign airfield assessments, and airbase ground defense. Michael honorably separated from the Air Force as a captain in 2004. Immediately after the Air Force, Michael was hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department, where he served in a variety of assignments, including patrol officer, uh, field training officer, SIU detective, undercover California Department of Justice narcotic task force agent, um, patrol sergeant. And then Michael was awarded the Walnut Creek Police Department Distinguished Service Medal in 2014 for his heroic and life-saving actions during a fatal officer-involved shooting in 2012. Michael ultimately medically retired in 2018. He is now a peer volunteer at the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat and an ambassador for Save a Warrior. He is a dedicated advocate for awareness, prevention, education, training on post-traumatic stress injury and first responder suicide prevention. He continues to speak at law enforcement agencies all over the United States. And we are going to get into his book, uh, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. He, uh, co-authored this with Dr. Shauna Springer, PhD. They tackle the complexity of trauma within the law enforcement community, uncovering the unspoken barriers and outline a path to healing. It's been described by Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, best-selling author of On Killing and On Combat, as one of the most important books of our time and the natural successor to on combat. So let me welcome you to the show, Michael. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share your story, to share the information that not only have you re researched, you've lived it, you know what it's like, you know the struggle, and uh, you're speaking from experience. So thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing with with my audience. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I'd like to start off at the beginning, uh, get an idea of 
some of your early influences, where you were born and raised, what your mom and dad did. Do you have any siblings? What were your what were your major motivations for joining the Air Force and then going into law enforcement? Well, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, and my parents were married until about when I was eight years old and they got divorced. Uh, my mom remarried shortly after that to my stepfather, who I consider to be my father, the one that primarily raised me, and he was in law enforcement. And so I remember at the age of eight years old um, was when I actually first knew that I wanted to be a police officer. And at that young age, I was actually a volunteer for the Sausalito Police Department, which is also here in Northern California. And, you know, I did things like wash patrol cars, file paperwork, used to ride in the annual parade. But the coolest thing that I remember was I had a laminated ID card that said Sausalito Police Department. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. I mean, being part of something bigger, being part of this blue family. And after that, when I was in high school, uh, my father actually switched departments to the Richmond Police Department, and I became a police explorer. And so at that age, as a teenager, I'm going to weekly meetings. I went through a shortened police academy for explorers. And the best part was I did ride-alongs with actual police officers, where I got to sit in the passenger seat and see firsthand what they do on a daily basis. And I knew then that there was nothing else that I wanted to do. Now, my original plan was to actually go into federal law enforcement. And so when I went into college, I actually got a full scholarship through the Air Force, through the Air Force ROTC program, studied criminal justice. Uh, my original obligation was four years. So I was gonna do four years in the Air Force, get out and go into the FBI. And a few things happened. Uh, a couple things were that I worked with a lot of federal agencies, U.S. Marshals, the FBI, and I realized that what they were doing was not really what I thought it was, and it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I also ended up getting offered an assignment in Germany, which extended my time into the Air Force. So I stayed in six and a half years instead of four. I made it to the rank of captain. And after I left Germany, I moved back to the United States and was stationed at Travis Air Force Base in California. It was at that point I started applying to civilian law enforcement agencies here in the Bay Area. And I got picked up right away by the Walnut Creek Police Department, which is about 15 minutes outside San Francisco. They put me through the police academy and I graduated December 2004. And that's when I started the field training process. And you go on to have quite the career in Walnut Creek Police Department. Um, and, and your experiences within that department led you to writing the book and be, becoming such an advocate for, for post-traumatic stress injury. Can you talk a little bit about your experience dealing with that, what it was like, um, maybe is there within that department a stigma, some kind, of, did you feel like you couldn't really come forward with a, a, a need to get help for the, the PTSD or, I mean, because 
within the fire service, I feel like there's somewhat of a stigma. You don't want to come forward. You don't want to be viewed as weak. Um, is, is it similar? Did you have similar experience? Well, there, there's a lot to what you're asking, but let me let me take a step backwards. And, you know, I've always had a path my entire life. I mean, from a young age, I knew what I was going to do. I progressed quickly through the military and through civilian law enforcement. You know, I got every assignment that I wanted. And eventually my goal was to be chief of police someday. I mean, that was my goal. And I aligned myself with that goal with everything in mind. And back in December of 2012, I was a brand new patrol sergeant. I had been just promoted. I was running teams on the street. I was happily married. I had a beautiful two and a half year old daughter. Just bought my dream house. I mean, literally, my life was as perfect as you could imagine it to be. And one night, the shift started the day after Christmas, and I was involved in a fatal police shooting. And that incident forever changed not only me as a person, but it changed my path, it changed my purpose. And, you know, in this shooting, to make a long story short, there was a suspect with a butcher knife who had broken into a condominium and he was trying to kill a couple with this butcher knife. And when we got there, he then turned his attention on us and tried to kill myself and my partners. And so we had to take his life to save not only our own lives, but the lives of the couple that was barricaded upstairs in this condo. And, you know, police shootings, we train for it. We talk about it, but the, the reality is that most people aren't aware of is that most police officers are never involved in a fatal shooting. I mean, literally most officers will go 20, 30 years and they will never, ever have to shoot somebody. Now, when you watch the news, you watch TV shows, you would think the opposite. You would think that most officers are involved in shootings all the time. And that's not the case. And as an example, my father, my stepfather who raised me, he worked for 30 years, two different departments, one of which was one of the most dangerous cities, not only in California, but in the nation at the time, Richmond, California. And he had never been involved in a fatal police shooting. Just, just kind of give you an example of this. And so we talk about it, we train for it, but when it happens, that's when things change. And in my case, you know, we don't know why this subject with the butcher knife tried to kill this couple and then tried to kill us. To this day, we don't know what happened with him. We don't know if it was drug-induced psychosis. We don't know if it was a mental snap. You know, he had no history of mental illness, no issues. He had no law enforcement contacts. And the fact was, up until this night, he was a good young man living a good life. And so... I have to live with the fact now that I actually took a human life, somebody who had a family, somebody who had brothers and had parents and grandparents. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to just have to live with that. And, and that was very difficult. And it immediately changed me as a person. I remember after being up for over 30 hours and I finally got home to my, my wife at the time and my daughter I felt numb at that point. I felt detached. And that started my process of isolation, of trying to drink myself to sleep, trying to hope this was some nightmare 
you know, something that didn't really happen and was just hoping it was going to go away. And there was a lot of things that happened in between where I was sued by the family. You know, it was a good shooting. We were cleared immediately by the district attorney's office. We were cleared by our internal investigators. I mean, we had living victims who later testified that we saved their lives. But yet I was drugged through four years of a federal lawsuit and was eventually a defendant on trial in San Francisco in federal court of all places. And during that time, you know, I wasn't asking for help because I was ashamed. I was embarrassed and I was suffering on the inside, but I wasn't showing it on the outside. You know, as, as first responders, especially as cops, we're very good at putting up an exterior front that nothing bothers us, that we're invincible, you know, that we have no fear. And, and it's not true. The facts are, is that, you know, I was living a horrible life on the inside and had this fake, you know, outside image that everybody was seeing. And nobody had any idea of how bad I was suffering. And I eventually lost my marriage. I started getting repeated skin cancer diagnosis. I lost my father, you know, going through the lawsuit. And it eventually got to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore. I literally wanted to die in the line of duty. And I started putting myself in dangerous situations at work, hoping I was killed in the line of duty, because that way I would be remembered. You know, my daughter would be taken care of. I would be memorialized. And so, you know, you hear a lot about like suicide by cop. Well, I was doing the opposite of that. And I was hoping that somebody would kill me on duty. And it wasn't until years later and months later my best friend, he was a Vietnam veteran. He was also a 35-year reserve officer. He tried to kill himself when I was on duty as a patrol sergeant. And thank God he survived, but his actions ended up saving my life because I realized how far down I was. And I realized that when I started blaming myself for my friend's suicide, I was worried that my daughter was going to blame herself for when I wasn't here. And there was no way I was going to do that to my daughter. And so, you know, this all happened. None of it was planned. None of it was asked for. And it was not until four years, four years of struggling and suffering to where I finally got the strength and courage to ask for help. And the simple reason why I didn't is like you said in the beginning, it's the stigma. It's the fact that Asking for help is looked at as weakness among the military, among first responders. And in reality, all it is, is acknowledging that we're human, acknowledging the hundreds of traumatic incidents that we see. You know, I talked about the shooting, but like all first responders, I've been to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic calls and incidents from suicides, fatal car accidents, you know, child abuse, even just natural deaths homicides, domestic violence, bar brawls. I mean, you name it, I've seen it. And that's just a normal day for us. And, and the fact is too, is that first responders are much more likely to die by their own hands than the hands of another. Yet we don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge it. You know, we train day in, day out to fight the enemy, to fight the obvious, obvious threat, but we don't look inward and look at our own threat. Interesting. I, I found that even when you go and you 
you ask for help the so the state of florida you know within the last few years made it uh a work-related uh insurance covered or you know work comp covered illness ptsd prior to that it wasn't and so now for you to qualify for that you've got to identify certain traumatic events that you were on the reality is is that if if you've had any time in service you've been exposed to so much it's that cumulative effect it's not any one thing you know, you can point to certain things, those big events, those really traumatic events, but there's so much to a career in public safety. And I, I just think it's a, it does a disservice um, to those that, that have served honorably and, and have given so much of themselves. Yeah. Anyways. I think one way to look at it is like, like a jar, like visually think about an empty jar and we start our career. There's a little bit of things in there, you know, from our childhood, from growing up. And as we go through our career, like you're talking about, you know, traumatic incident after traumatic incident, if you're not talking about it and you're not addressing it, which we don't, then this jar starts to fill up to the point where in my case, the shooting was the tipping point where it made my jar overflow where it was just too much at that point. And so, you know, you can't change the fact that as firefighters, as paramedics, police officers, we are going to see trauma day in and day out. You can't change that. It's the job, you know, we're aware of it, but what we can do is acknowledge and just talk about it. Like it doesn't have to be some huge ordeal, but just address the human side of these incidents as they happen. You know, as, as an example, uh, a very frequent one now that you hear about is a pedestrian hit by a motor vehicle. And these are calls that both police, paramedics, and firefighters are going to show up to and that dispatchers are handling on the radio. And these incidents, although they're common, it's traumatic to see a person dead or seriously injured in the middle of a street. I mean, that is traumatic. And so, you know, when we're done with all the formalities of the call and we've cleared the scene that's when as a group whether it's the fire side or the police side or the dispatchers we just talk about it we kind of debrief it in a human way and, and we acknowledge what we went to and what we see but that's not what we do what we normally do is we joke about it and we we call this gallows humor but instead of acknowledging the human impact of this we'll just joke about it and, you know, people may think that's disturbing or, you know, that we, we don't care. And it's not true. It's a survival mechanism that was created long before you and I, that's been carried on through generations. And it's a way to say, look, this doesn't bother me. This stuff doesn't phase me. I'm all good. Let's go on to the next call. And that's how we handle it. And so we need to get away from that gallows humor and just talk about it. Like I said, it doesn't have to be a huge ordeal but just acknowledge the humanity, acknowledge what we saw and what we're exposed to. Can you talk about how you got connected with Save a Warrior and um, how you became a volunteer with the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat? 
Absolutely. So um, I'll start with the West Coast post-trauma retreat because chronolo chronologically that happened first. So when I finally asked for help, it was the end of December 2016. And so, you know, my department was very supportive. They got me off work. I started seeing a culturally competent therapist, which is key to this whole thing. And that's a therapist who basically works with and understands the uniqueness of being a first responder. And so I started seeing her. She started telling me about these first responder support meetings that, again, were confidential. They were held offsite. They were for only first responders. And she also mentioned this West Coast post-trauma retreat. And so I ended up going through that as a client in May of 2017. It's a week-long residential retreat only for first responders. You can be active, you can be on injury, you can be retired, but you have to be a paramedic, a firefighter, a dispatcher, or a police officer. And so when I went through this program, um, one of the first things that happened was, is I realized I wasn't alone. I realized that I wasn't unique. You know, with there were six basically clients, including myself, and the rest were made up of volunteers. We had volunteer peers who are people like myself that have been through the program. Uh, we had volunteer chaplains, clinicians, uh, psychiatrists, you know, therapists. And basically the, the week long is part educational. It's part therapeutic. They do things like introduce you to EMDR. And, you know, most importantly, you see that your fellow brothers and sisters are just like you. And, and they are able to share their experiences and their traumatic incidents, some from childhood, you know, many from the job in a room full of people. And the ironic thing is that in this program, within about a day or day and a half, you actually feel so comfortable. And I've seen this time and time again, and it happened with myself, that people end up sharing this monkey on their back, something that's been with them for years and years, in some cases, their entire life that they've never shared with anybody. I mean, not even their own spouses, not their own siblings and the power behind sharing in a confidential, but yet trusted, comfortable environment is key to this healing process. And so that program forever changed my life. I mean, it literally saved my life. And because of the power in that program, I later, six months after I went through, I went back as a peer. And now I go back one or two times a year for a week at a time, and I volunteer. And, and again, every time I go back, I see this magic happen over and over and over again. And I literally see lives not only changed, but saved right in front of me. And, and this program started out in Northern California, but now they have locations all over the United States. And the second program I went through years later. So Save a Warrior um, is actually a little bit different. This one is for active military, veterans, and or first responders. So it's a little bit broader. Um, there is no cost for Save a Warrior. For West Coast, there is a cost. But Save a Warrior focuses on complex post-traumatic stress. Now, a lot of first responders don't want to hear this, but we don't choose this career by accident. It actually, it's a calling. It chooses us. 
for many first responders, and again, paramedics, firefighters, dispatchers, cops, we all have some form of childhood trauma. It could be very minor, benign. It could be like an emotionally distant parent. It could be, or an alcoholic or addict parent, or it could be very severe and it could be some kind of physical or sexual abuse, whether by a family member or a family friend or an acquaintance. But, you know, the facts are is that this trauma at a young age makes us very resilient. It makes us very good at overcoming adversity and actually makes us very good first responders, ironically. It makes us very good at what we do. And in my case, I never acknowledged the childhood trauma. I worked on the street trauma. I worked on the shooting, the obvious traumatic incidents, but I didn't deal with my emotionally addict, alcoholic father, my biological father. And so I ended up going through this program in August of 2000, I believe, 19 or 20. And again, it changed my life. I mean, this program is, it's a little bit less than a week. It's not co-ed, it's for both men and women, but they run separate cohorts and it's based out of Ohio. They also have a location in Southern California, but the power of going to both these programs allowed me to work on the childhood trauma and then the work-related trauma. And if you think about it, we have our childhood trauma and then we've got our work-related trauma on top of it. And it kind of stacks up and we need to peel those back and work on both these things at the same time. If you only work on one, you're not going to get to where you need to be. And so both of these programs, I highly, highly recommend. I mean, I would have paid over $100,000 to get what these programs gave to me or more. And Save a Warrior is 100% free. I mean, there is no cost. All you got to do is get yourself there. In the case of West Coast post-trauma retreat, a lot of times work comp insurance will cover it. Um, agencies will cover it. And they also have scholarships and payment plans. And that one is a few thousand dollars to go through. But again, these programs will absolutely save your life. Save your life. It's interesting that you would bring up the adverse childhood experiences Um I talked about this on an earlier episode where individuals, like you, like you said, that have these childhood experiences, these childhood traumas, we make really good first responders. And we move into those career fields where we can help others. But we're also more susceptible to PTSD. And we're going right into these fields where we're going to be exposed to traumatic events and, and we're already there. Uh, I, I can't remember the statistic, but those with a certain number of adverse childhood experiences are at a much higher risk of experiencing symptoms of PTSD. And it's just funny that we're drawn to that. It's a calling, but we're exposing ourselves to, to potentially uh, more events that could cause uh, you know, complex PTSD. 
Well, absolutely. And we're natural caretakers. And like I said, it makes us very, very good at what we do. The problem is that we're always focused on helping others. I mean, we're literally willing to put our life on the line every single day for complete strangers, but we don't take care of our own selves, you know, and we have to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of others. And that's to me is the most ironic part is that we're out there every single day, 20, 30 years at a time, taking care of everybody else. That when are we actually stopping to take care of ourselves? When did you start working with Dr. Springer? And how did that relationship evolve to where you guys wrote a book together? Um, I'll take you back actually a few years to 2019. And so I had medically retired. Um, I've always been kind of big on social media because I was a PIO. It was an additional duty for me at my law enforcement agency. And I had a very big network on LinkedIn. And I was always posting articles, stories, things about post-traumatic stress injury, suicide awareness, suicide prevention. And a, a guy named Danny Bird actually reached out to me. And he was a former cop who ran a podcast show. And I never even thought about once talking about any of this in a public forum, you know, not on podcasts, not in person, certainly not in a book. And so Danny, he basically harassed me. You know, I turned him down. Eventually he's like, look, dude, he's like, I will drive the two hours to you. I just need an hour of your time. He's like, I just want to capture your story. And so, you know, after saying no for several months, finally, I agreed to do it. You know, I wanted to back out, but I was committed and he drove out and I did this podcast interview. And that was what changed everything. That was what set me on the path that I'm on right now that I never imagined. I never envisioned. And what happened was during this podcast, for the first time, I was open and transparent and talked about everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, all the mistakes I made. It was out there for the world to see it. I literally couldn't control it anymore. I mean, I literally at this point, I hadn't talked to like 99% of the people in my agency. Like most people that I even knew had no idea the things I was going through. And I did this public podcast that was heard all over the world. And what happened was, is that I started getting messages from people from Australia, from England, you know, all over the US, how what I talked about resonated with them, how they related to it. And then they started sharing their personal experiences with me. And so the combination of that and just the healing aspect of it's off my shoulders, I can't control it. You know, if people accept it or they don't accept it, that's up to them. And that kind of snowballed into just doing a lot of podcasts. I mean, I think I've done like 40 podcast interviews all over the world. And fast forward, you know, Doc Springer, she is on LinkedIn and she sees the work I'm doing. She sees the interviews I'm putting out there. And she just reaches out to me. She's like, hey, if you have time at some point, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And so I agreed to it like I usually do. And we started talking and I found out that she is a psychologist who has worked with combat veterans and first responders most of her career. So she truly gets it. She had written uh, three different books and she also works for an organization called Stella, which deals with stellate ganglion block SGB, which is a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. 
And so we had a conversation and she was talking, I was talking and she literally asked me, she was like, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book? I said, well, actually I have, but honestly, I'm like completely burnt out from over 20 years of report writing between the military and civilian law enforcement. And I just don't have that drive or energy to write a book like this. Like I'd like to, but I just, I don't have that drive. And so we kind of just left it at that. And months later, she reached out to me again and we started talking and she's like, look, she's like, I've really been thinking about this. She's like, your story, it, it can help so many people out there. I really think your story can save lives. And she's like, I want to make this book happen for you. She's like, I want to work with you and make this project happen. And that's how it got started. And so about two years ago, we started this project and it started out, you know, we created the format, the chapters, and it was the height of COVID. So we were doing basically two hour Zoom meetings, like once a week and going back and forth. And eventually it turned into this book. And this book is... It's almost out. It's fully done. Um, it's being formatted as we speak. It's going to be on Amazon and Kindle at first. And the format of the book is there's 15 chapters. Um, every chapter has two parts. The first part is my story told in my voice going all the way back to childhood till now. And the second part of every chapter is Dr. Springer's insights, her analysis, her global explanation so that Anybody reading this book, whether you're a first responder, a veteran, a family member of one, or just somebody on the street who knows nothing about us, you can pick up this book and you will understand and see the human side behind the, the badge. You will see the toll of being a first responder. And more importantly, you will see how to recover from post-traumatic stress injury, how to have a whole new life on the other side like I do because I'm living proof of that. And I have no doubt that this book, it's going to save lives. It's going to save countless lives. And I cannot wait for it to come out. Can you rewind a little bit to, you mentioned Stella. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So um, a lot of people aren't aware of SGB, which is stellate ganglion block. It is a medical procedure that's been around for over 100 years. It actually was first used for pain, and it was kind of like a pain block procedure. And several years ago, uh, doctors found out that it actually be, can be used to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress injury. So to kind of back up from that, repeated exposure to trauma actually causes a change a physical change and a chemical change to the human brain it's a fact i mean brain imaging brain scans show this and that's why i prefer to call it post-traumatic stress injury as opposed to disorder and so the way the procedure works is it's an injection and it's above the collarbone and it's in a set bundle of nerves it's done under either a sonogram or some type of imaging device it's done by an anesthesiologist. So it's only done by a medical doctor. And it goes to a specific point in your bundle of nerves. And the idea is, the way that it works, is the amygdala is the primitive part of the human brain. That's the part of the brain that's like the fight or flight. That's the one which puts you on high alert. It makes you get irritable for no reason. It causes those physical 
reactions from stress. And so this anesthetic, which is just a common anesthetic, it slows down the amygdala. So it, it slows down that firing, which reduces the physical symptoms. Now, this procedure itself, it's not a cure-all. The point is that you should do the procedure and combine it with therapy or going to programs like West Coast Post Trauma Retreat or Save a Warrior or like Mission 22's Recovery and Resilience, another program that I'm in right now. And it has different effective ranges. For some people, it works six months. For other people, it can work up to three years. But the beauty of this is, is that by reducing those physical symptoms of PTSD, it opens you up so that you can focus and work on the things that you need to work on through therapy, through group meetings, through other programs. And so, and we talk about this heavily in our new book. We talk about this procedure. Um, if you want to know more about it, the simplest way is to just Google Stella, S-T-E-L-L-A, and put SGB which stands for stellate ganglion block. Um, I've had the procedure done. I've had it done twice. Um, usually the first time you get it done, you get it done on the right side. And the second time you get it done on the left side if the right side doesn't work. And so I've had it done. It's virtually painless. The procedure itself takes like 15 minutes. And instantly I felt the effects of it. I felt the reduction of the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress injury. Pretty incredible. It's, it's honestly, you think it's too good to be true, but it's been on 60 minutes. There's been tons of research done on it, tons of articles done on it. And it's been used, I think, for at least over the last 10 years in the special operations community. So when I say that, I mean like Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Army Rangers. And now, you know, it's getting out to the point where not only are first responders using it, but just civilians, regular people who have trauma in their lives they're using it. So it doesn't matter what type of trauma you're suffering from. This procedure helps the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress injury. And the procedure itself, you don't go there and talk about your trauma. It's not a counseling procedure. It is just a physical medical procedure. There's no, you know, talking about your trauma when you get this done. That is for later on with a therapist or a trained clinician. I imagine that would be huge to use in conjunction with like EMDR. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, there, there's not a magic bullet for, for anybody. Like in my case, even it's a combination approach. I've done a lot of things to get where I'm at and I'm still working on it. And I think most people, like anything else in life, they want to find that one magic thing, that one magic pill that's going to make it all go away. And the facts are that, Things work differently for different people. It depends on your biochemistry. It depends on your trauma. You know, you mentioned EMDR. For me, it doesn't work. I've tried it three times, but I've seen it work on countless people. You know, when I go to that West Coast post-trauma retreat, I've literally seen it work right in front of my eyes. So I know it works, you know, but it didn't work for me. And that's the key is that you have to have an open mind when it comes to treatment for post-traumatic stress injury. It takes perseverance, it takes patience, and it takes a lot of work. I mean, like I said, I am still working on it today. I've had these conversations with, with quite a few different people, and you know, you compare notes like what worked for you, what and 
and with everybody it's it's multiple approaches to just take care of those different little areas uh one thing will address the bulk of this and then another thing can help like close the door on it and then you know it's but it's ongoing i i don't think you can ever say that you're cured of ptsd or ptsi it, well you seems... know the facts the facts are that you're never going to be the same person you were before post-traumatic stress injury you're just not so it does forever change you but in my case i think i'm actually a better person today than i was before post-traumatic stress injury and it does require maintenance it does require work you know for me i have a routine like part of what helps me is the gym i have to go to the gym every single day if i'm not going to the gym then i'm hiking i'm doing something active so i know for my recovery that in order to be doing well to stay positive to reduce my symptoms i need to do physical activity but i also need to do meditation you know i still go to therapy not as often as i used to but i still go to therapy because why that's just talking about things with a trusted person that's all it is yet there's this stigma associated with oh my god are you going to therapy like what's wrong with you it's like no i'm just in a safe trusted <laughs> environment you know where I can talk about anything. I can talk about work trauma. I can talk about my relationships. I can talk about, you know, just normal financial stress or family stress. The fact is that you're talking about it. And so, you know, I still volunteer at the West Coast post-trauma retreat. So I am night and day. I mean, where I was to where I am today. But like you said, you know, you got to do maintenance. You got to care for yourself. And there's always going to be more stressors in our life. There's always going to be more trauma. I mean, even if you're retired, there's personal trauma. There's family trauma. There's deaths in the family. There's cancer diagnoses. I mean, you name it, there are issues that we need to talk about and address. And that's everybody. I don't care who you are, what background you have. We all have things we have to deal with. But the key is don't bury it. Don't hide it. Don't be ashamed of it make it normal to talk about this stuff. That is key to this whole thing is normalize addressing it and talking about it. I can't thank you enough for, for sharing all of this and, and really having this conversation with me. For those listening that would like to connect with you or, or follow you to, to know when the book is out and, and maybe connect with you to find out about uh, resources that are available. What, what's the best way for people to connect with you? So there's a couple easy ways. Uh, the first is if you're on LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn every single day. I check the messages. I'm posting on there all the time. And it's just under my name, Michael Sugru, S-U-G-R-U-E. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. I run two key pages. The first one is called first responders first and i'll say that again but first responders first both on instagram and facebook and i also have a private group that i created only for military or first responders and on those pages i'm always sharing information articles not necessarily that i write but that i find that pertain to dispatchers firefighters cops paramedics military active and veterans 
And so there is always, always great information on there. And I'm usually posting the two to three, sometimes four times a day on those sites. And the other ones on Instagram and Facebook is Sergeant Michael Segru. Again, Sergeant Michael Segru. So LinkedIn, and then you've got the two different pages on both Instagram and Facebook. That's the easiest and best way to get a hold of me. And I will have updates on the book. And as soon as it's available on Amazon, I will have that posted with the date and the link to order. Well, I will make sure that your, your social media accounts, your LinkedIn account is uh, hyperlinked in the show notes so that it's easy enough for those listening to just go to the show notes and click on it and connect with you. Awesome. Yeah, I'm always here and like I'm very responsive. So just send me a message and I will definitely get back to you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.